If you have a Bible, go with me today to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Today I'm going to preach a message um, that, that I can't wait to preach. But first I just want to say, are you thankful for our pastors, Pastor JP and Miss Melissa? I never want to take an opportunity without, without honoring them. I love them. I'm so thankful for Pastor JP and Miss Melissa, not just because they're my in-laws, uh, but because also they uh, are such good pastors. And I'm so thankful for people who engage in culture and not run away from it. Amen and engage in what God is doing in our, in our world. Just want to say a special hello to all those who are watching with us online. I'm sure we've got a lot of people traveling. I know of a few people, so we're glad that you've jumped on, and especially those in our extended church family here in the correctional facility in the county. Come on, can we put our hands together and welcome all those watching online? Amen. Hey, well, Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 1, today I want to preach a message entitled, Jesus Changes Everything. Jesus Changes Everything. Come on, how many will testify that Jesus changes everything, amen? Jesus changes everything, especially as we, as we move into the Christmas season. This is not a Christmas message, so you can relax. I hope you got your Christmas trees up, though. It's after Thanksgiving. My wife has had ours up for about two months now, so... We've been doing a Hallmark movies, cookies. I'm already gaining weight. Come on, somebody. But Jesus changes everything. As we move into the Christmas season, I want us to, to, to think about this message and this topic of, of how Jesus changes everything. As we consider the, the birth of Christ and subsequently his, his life and his death and ultimately his resurrection and ascension into heaven, I think it's worth considering today that, that Jesus' life has changed everything on this earth. It has changed everything on this earth. It has changed the course of history. Of course, you've heard it said before, but it's worth mentioning again that that silent night 2,000 years ago, it wasn't so silent as, as his legacy reverberated through the pages of history. Jesus has changed everything in our world. I mean, we could give example after example after example and stay here all day of how justice and righteousness has reigned in the land, especially in the West, especially even in America, because of the faith, because of the impact that our faith has had in the world. In the world, Jesus changes everything. I, I have a, a lot of examples, but I thought I'd just give you a few before we jump into Acts chapter 1 today. A few examples of how Jesus has changed everything. Here's the first one. This will make your head spin a little bit. The first one is, is a guy by the name of Charles Darwin. How many's heard that name before? Charles Darwin, who, who I guess you could say for lack of a better term, is sort of the father of, of modern evolution as we understand it today, an idea that many people would use to attack Christianity and the inerrancy and inspiration of the scripture, especially the first part of Genesis. But listen to what Charles Dar Darwin said in his first work he had ever written and, and before he was gripped by the worldview that, that came to him later on in his life, he, he remarks on the profound impact that Christian missionaries had in the Pacific Islands. So he's praising Christian missionaries here. Now I want you to hear this. is such an interesting quote by a man like Charles Darwin. Here's what he said, quote, It appears to me that the morality and religion of the inhabitants of this island are highly creditable. There are many who attack the missionaries. However, they forget or they will not remember that human sacrifices and the power of an idolatrous priesthood, infanticide, bloody wars, where the conquerors spared neither women nor children, that all of these things have been abolished and that dishonesty, intemperance, and licentiousness have greatly been reduced. How? By the introduction, this is Charles Darwin, by the introduction of Christianity. By Christianity. 
Should he, the people who attacked the Christian missionaries, chance to be at the point of shipwreck on some unknown coast, he will devoutly pray that the lesson of the Christian missionary may be extended thus far. Isn't that an interesting quote by a guy like Charles Darwin? What he's saying is, is that the impact of Christianity on places like the Pacific Islands during this time had a huge impact on the world. And this is the story of the past 2,000 years since Christ's birth. As, as again, as Christian, as Christian doctrine and theology and righteousness and justice has, has reigned, it has been a result of our faith. John Newton in, in the 1700s was, was caught up in the Atlantic slave trade. Just to give you another example, and probably the most disgusting, evil, and immoral act that you could ever think of, the Atlantic slave trade, where he would take other image bearers of God, he would take them, transport them, and then sell them to other people as if they are possessions. The Atlantic slave trade was awful and evil work. And eventually Jesus changed his life. He would leave that sort of work, praise the Lord. He'd become a pastor and would actually live his life fighting against and trying to save people from the slave trade. And he would go on, you probably know this, but it's worth mentioning. He would go on to write these words in a hymn that we still sing today, saying, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Come on, how many would say Jesus changes everything? He changes everything. John Newton John Newton would go on to influence a guy by the name of William Wilberforce, who Pastor JP mentioned not too long ago, who, who had an inkling in his life that he might want to go into the ministry. But it was because of a minister like John Newton who encouraged him to go into the realm of politics. And he would fight for laws that would officially ban the slave trade. And in his life, he would see the abolition of the slave trade in Europe because of the faith that he stood upon. Because of the faith that he stood upon. 200 years later, 200 years later, Martin Luther King Jr. right here in Alabama and Mississippi was fighting laws like the Jim Crow laws and, and racism in the South. He was fighting against these things. He was a Christian minister. And in his letters from a Birmingham jail, this is the last example I'll give you today, but in his letters from a Birmingham jail, I want you to listen to what he says. He's trying to distinguish between just laws and unjust laws. How do you determine what is a just law and an unjust law? 200 years later, Martin Luther King Jr., motivated by the same faith by people like John Newton and William Wilberforce, said this. He said, quote, now what is the difference between the two? How does one determine whether a law is just or unjust? He said, a just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law, or listen to this, the law of God, the law of God. And there is no mistaking who Martin Luther King Jr. was referring to when he was referring to God. It wasn't just some, some God of the system or God of some other religion. He was referring to the God of Scripture, the God of Scripture. What I want you to know today and understand before we jump into God's Word, what I want you to know is the past 2,000 years, our faith, the Christian faith, this God's word, the, the God that we came to worship today, the God that we came to hear from, the God that we serve, the God that we live for, it has not stood on the sideline the past 2,000 years as justice and righteousness has reigned in the land. Rather, our faith has played a pivotal part in this world because God cares about our world. Jesus changes everything. He changes everything. He changes everything. He changes everything. This, is, this has been the plan from all along. 
I told you this wasn't a Christmas message, but I want to share one verse with you. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7, it says, For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall what? Be upon his shoulder. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be what? No end. There'll be no end. And of the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Oh, come on, you need to hear that today. Justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. So the justice of God and the righteousness of God, it's not a one-day thing. It's not a, it's not a look what happened in the past thing. There's a lot of talk today about, man, I wish we could just go back to the good old days. Let me just tell you something. That justice and righteousness has not taken a break. God has not paused. God is not worried about what's going on in our world. The justice and righteousness of God will reign from this time forth and forevermore. And forevermore. Here's how he'll do it. Here's how he'll do it. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Come on, God said, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to save the world. I'm going to change everything. And so in Acts chapter 1, I want you to read this. I think there are some lessons that we can take from the early church who, where it all started. It all started in Acts chapter 1 with a few uneducated and inexperienced men who didn't even know where to look. They didn't know what they were doing. And I want to read this to you. If you don't have your Bibles, we're going to have it on the screen. Acts chapter 1, verse 6 through 11. Here's what it says. It says, so when they, the disciples, had come together, they asked him, Jesus, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, they were looking on, and he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. And he said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up for you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. You know, the book of Acts really stands in contrast to the rest of the books in the New Testament in, in a couple of different ways. The first way, number one, is this, that... That in the New Testament, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which are the Gospels, of course, and they tell the story of Jesus. And then after you get past Acts, you have Romans, Ephesians, Galatians, all that good stuff. And they're letters from apostles to churches. But the Acts, the book of Acts, is the story of the church. It's a story of the advancement of the church of Jesus Christ. Actually, it's, it's part two. If you're interested in part ones and part twos, Luke writes the gospel of Luke and then you get to Acts. He's, he's writing again to Theophilus and he's telling the story of, of the church. So that's one way it's different. But the second way that is different than the rest of the books is that most of the books in the New Testament, again, the gospels and the epistles, the letters, all that good stuff, they have official endings to the book. They have official endings to the book. If you've never heard this, this might be worth worth knowing and noting is that the book of Acts, interestingly enough, the story of the church, it never ends. You get to Acts chapter 28 and, and there's never an official ending to the book of Acts. And many theologians, historians have concluded that the reason this is so is because the book of Acts continues today. The church continues today. We are literally living in Acts chapter 29 today. And what I want you to know today is that the same God that the apostles served and worshiped in the book of Acts is the same God that we serve today. 
The God who performs miracles in the book of Acts is the same God who performs miracles today. The same God who heals bodies then, he heals bodies now. We need to stand on that truth and we need to start believing for more that the same God who empowered, again, uneducated and inexperienced disciples and apostles to stand before kings and priests and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, that's the same power that I have. That's the same power you have. We serve the same God. So today I want to give you just a few lessons that we can learn from the disciples in Acts chapter 1. Three lessons that we can learn from them to to re-encounter the the life-impacting power of Jesus Christ in our world today. Because how many know we need Jesus? Amen? We need Jesus. Here's the first one, if you're taking notes, is that we need to recapture the power of God. To recapture the power of God. You know, today's predominant worldview and philosophy, if it even believes in God, if it even believes in God, it posits a God who is distant from his creation, who is distant from his creation. They believe that maybe God created a big bang and then everything happened from then. You have natural selection, that everything goes on from there. But the God of scripture, the God that we believe, the God that we worship is not so. It's not what we believe in. The God of Scripture is not distant. The God of Scripture doesn't just begin things and then leave things to go as they will. The God of Scripture doesn't leave you. Rather, the God of Scripture is involved in his creation. He's involved in his creation. You you can actually see the work of the Spirit of God as early as, I believe, verse 3 in Genesis chapter 1 as he's hovering over the face of the waters. God is involved in his creation. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. God's involved in his creation. And the main way that he's involved in his creation is he's involved in his creation through the action of the Holy Spirit. Through the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit in our lives. We need the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Listen, one distinct way that Christians can live differently from everyone else is that we believe there's a purpose to the world. And there's a purpose to the earth. And there's a purpose to our life. Have you ever thought about how bankrupt an an ideology that that doesn't believe in God and doesn't believe in a creator? I I, I once heard it said that that the most offensive verse in the Bible is not not that God calls this sin or God calls that sin or, 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 or any of those things, but rather the most offensive verse in the Bible is in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Because if God created the heavens and the earth, then God has the right to dictate how we ought to live. God is our creator. He is involved in his creation and he's given us his Holy Spirit to live differently than the world, to believe that there is a purpose, to believe that there is a plan, to believe that we're not just floating in this world purposeless, that when we die, it's not the end, that we have the Holy Spirit in our lives who guides us and leads us and to give us, here's a key word that I think we need today, to give us victory in our lives, to give us victory in our world. We need that Holy Spirit. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, I grew up, I've said this before, but I grew up Pentecostal. And let me tell you something, when the Holy Spirit moved, it was like a physical exercise. You needed to stretch, you know what I'm saying? Like, it got a little crazy. You was afraid you didn't get knocked out when the Holy Spirit moved. But let me just say something. I believe as a result of a lot of those things 
that, that there are some people who love it. And there's, we don't have to get into all that. But my point is this, is that sometimes we can be fearful of the Holy Spirit or hesitant to the Holy Spirit. And what I want to encourage us today is not to disengage from the Holy Spirit, but to engage what the Holy Spirit is doing in our lives. It doesn't make us weird. It gives us power. It gives us power in our lives. You know, one of the mistakes that, that, that the church that I used to grow up in, one of the mistakes we would make is we would limit the power of the Holy Spirit to a church service. Oh, I believe the Holy Spirit's going to move today. We would limit the power of the Holy Spirit. But what I think we need to do is we need to expand our idea of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit isn't just something that moves at 10 o'clock in the morning when the worship music starts. Rather, the Holy Spirit is something that goes with us in this world and empowers us in our job, empowers us in our marriage, empowers us in our parenting. I want us to be people full of the Holy Spirit, full of the Holy Spirit and believing that the Holy Spirit can move powerfully in our world, in our lives. We need the Holy Spirit. You know, a terminology that was used back when I was in Bible college, and I love this, and I think we need more of this, is the terminology Christ-centered. We want to be Christ-centered, Christ-centered in in our preaching, Christ-centered in our ministry, Christ-centered in our worship. We want to exalt Christ in everything that we do. But I want you to know today is that to be Christ-centered is to be spirit-filled. To be Christ-centered is to be spirit-filled. This is the plan for Jesus in our world today that the way that Christ would be magnified is not through how good we are. It's not through just merely our giftings and our talents, any of those things. But Christ said, I'm going to be exalted in this world today through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's going to remind us of Jesus This is what Jesus says in John chapter 14. He says, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have spoken to you. He said, peace I leave with you. Come on, how many just know that this world just needs peace? Peace I live with you. If you want to have peace, you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Peace I live with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Why? Because we have the Holy Spirit in our lives. We have power. Come on, how many say we need to be filled with the Spirit today? Amen? We need to be filled with the Spirit. How do we become people of power? Here's how I think we become people of power. We become people of power when we become people of prayer. We become people of power when we become people of prayer. I was recently listening to a message from a guy by the name of Andrew Sandlin who who uh, brought up this point. I had never heard this before, and I didn't go read the entire Bible to figure out if it was true. But he brought up this point, and he said, you know, there are only three instances in the Scripture, maybe two, but, but maybe three, where, where God says no to a prayer. In all other instances, God answers prayers. God is in the business of answering prayer. You have one where David prays for the salvation of a son that he committed adultery with, and and God says no. In another instance in the New Testament, if, if you want to count this, that Paul prays that the thorn in his flesh would be removed. The Bible says that he prays three times as this would be removed. And, and as far as we know, God never removes it. And the third time, if you want to count this, I don't know if it really qualifies, but Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, Lord, let this cup pass from me, yet not my will be done, but your will be done. In all other instances, God answers prayers. God answers prayers. Why? Because your God is in the business of answering prayers. He's in the business of answering prayers. I believe that if we're going to be people of power, we need to be people of prayer. We need to be people of prayer. Here recently I was just, I was in my garage and 
my wife and I, we were just going through some stuff to get rid of, get rid of some of the clutter. And I, I, I opened, um, you know, a little notebook that I had back in Bible college, maybe, I don't know, five or six years ago. And, and I, I don't, I, I'm sad to say that I don't do this anymore as much as I, I should, but I, I, in Bible college, I would just begin to write down prayers and write down prayers, things that I would believe in and things that I was hoping for. And I, just in a garage at like 11 o'clock at night, my faith just to begin to move as I, as I considered the prayers that God had answered six years ago. And here's what I want to encourage you to do, man. We need to be people of prayer that not only just praise things, very pietistically or spiritually. I think that's sometimes the tendency of the church today. Lord, give me wisdom. All right, I'll give you wisdom. Give me insight, all of those things. But man, we need to pray prayers that are measurable, that God says, I'm gonna give to you. Why? Because God cares about our lives. God cares about our lives. So we need to pray about everything. What do we pray about? Everything. Not just things we think God cares about, but we need to pray for everything in our lives because God cares about our lives. God cares about the minute details of our lives. The Bible says that he actually numbers the hairs on our head. I find it hard to believe that God's like numbering the hairs on our head, but he doesn't care about all other details of our lives. So we need to pray. This is what Paul says. He says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, with prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. And he says, in the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So we pray about everything. We pray about everything. We pray for a godly husband and a godly wife. We pray for, for a, a new job that, that creates more avenues of profit in our lives. We pray for our finances. We pray for our business. We pray for our marriage. We pray for our children. We pray for our pastors. We pray for our, our church. We are people of prayer. We're people of prayer. You say, what if God never answers my prayer? Then you live your whole life praying. What a testimony to God's goodness, right? We're people of prayer. So we pray for everything. Number two is we pray for each other. We need to be a church that prays for each other. James 5, 16 says, confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. For the prayers of the righteous, I love this verse, the prayers of the righteous availeth much. Availeth much. If you want your prayers answered, get somebody praying for you. Get somebody believing for you. We pray for each other. Number three, we pray for our nation. There's so many ways that you can pray, but we need to be praying for our nation. Second Chronicles 7.14 says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. I will heal their land. So we need to be praying for our nation. One way can we pray for our nation is we can pray for our pastors this week. We can pray for the Supreme Court on December 1st that God would bring a halt to the evils of abortion. We pray for our nation. So we need to recapture the power of God in our lives. Number two is I think we need to reestablish our purpose. Reestablish our purpose. Here's what happens is, is the disciples, they come to Jesus when, this of course is after his resurrection, and he's about to send into heaven. And before he goes, the disciples get one more question with him. And they ask him, they say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And here's what Jesus says. He says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. And this may seem counterintuitive, but I think one way that we reestablish our purpose on the earth is first, is that we just need to know what we don't know. That may seem weird, but let me explain that to you. We just need to know 
what we don't know. And I think the tendency a lot of the times, at least for me, is when things are happening in, in, in my life and in our world, I allow my present circumstances to determine how I think about God or how God thinks about me. Well, if I'm going, if I'm going through a situation or a circumstance that, that isn't the best or is, or is bringing me into a state of depression or whatever that is, I, we can think, well, God's just teaching me a lesson. God's just disciplining me. God's doing this or God's doing that. And those things may be true. I'm not saying that they aren't. But what I am saying is that I don't know the mind of God, but what I do know is the word of God. And listen, here's what I want to encourage us to do today. We don't speculate about the mind of God. We stand on the word of God. We stand on the word of God. Listen, I'm believing. I'm believing for the salvation of our country, just like Pastor Kim prayed about, that righteousness and, and, and justice would, would return to our land. Is it possible that God is, is taking us through a season right now in our nation where he's teaching us something? It's possible. It's possible. I don't know. But what I do know is God's promises. What I do know is God's word. And God's word says, if you'll believe in me and trust in me and turn from your evil ways and pray, I will heal your land. His ways are higher than my ways and thoughts are higher than my thoughts. So I don't speculate about the mind of God. I stand on the word of God. I stand on the promises of God that he has good things for me. He has good things for me. Can I tell you that today? God has good things for you planned. He has good things for you planned. I love the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis where Joseph was one of 12 brothers and, and he was the favorite of his dads and in jealousy and envy, his brothers sold him into slavery. And man, if anybody had a hard life, it was Joseph. He was sold into slavery. He was thrown into a prison for a crime that he didn't even commit. And if anyone had a reason to question God, it was Joseph. If anyone had a reason to say, man, why am I in the position that I'm in? It's Joseph. But yet it was Joseph in Genesis 50, 20, who said to the same brothers who sold him into slavery, he said, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. What you intended for evil, God intended for good. Listen, it isn't that God, what, 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 what the enemy meant for evil, God turned for good. I would never want us to get the, the, the crazy idea that God's in heaven and he just kind of gets surprised by the devil. Like the, the devil does something in our life and you're like, goodness gracious, that devil got me again. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go fix this. I'm going to go turn it for your good. Oh, oh you're, you, you, you get broken in, in the same relationship that you've been in over and over again. I can't believe that happened. I'm going to turn it for your good. God isn't surprised. God isn't shocked. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. And the intentions that the enemy has for you, God says, I have them for good. I have good intentions for your life. So we need to trust God. We need to stand on his word. And number two is I think we need to reach for more. We need to start reaching for more. They say you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel. And, and in a weird way, I think God kind of just says, um, this ain't just about Israel. If you think this is just about Israel, you're being nearsighted. This isn't just about the restoration of the kingdom of God in Israel. This is about the restoration of the kingdom of God in the world. In the world. He says, I'm going to make you my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria. And, and I love this. Uh, I believe the New King James Version says this to the uttermost parts. The uttermost parts of the world. I think we need to reestablish our purpose by aligning ourselves with the purpose of God and his heart for the world. God loves the world. God loves the world. This is what Jesus says in John chapter three. He says, for God so loved the world 
that he gave his only son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but through him the world might be what? Saved. God's plan and God's intention for the world is salvation. It's love. It's forgiveness. That's God's plan for the world. That's his plan. There's a guy by the name of Joseph Budos recently reading one of his books, and he said something that's really interesting, and I thought I would share it with you today. He said, if Christians suffer from anything today, he said, we suffer, and catch this terminology, we suffer from an underrealized salvation. Isn't that interesting? An underrealized salvation. And here's what he means by that. He means that, that we're good with Jesus forgiving our sins, but we stop there. And it is an amazing truth that Jesus forgives our sins. We should stand in awe of that, that God has redeemed us and makes us righteous. But God has done so much more than that on the cross. He hasn't just forgiven us of our sins. For example, one thing that God did on the cross, according to the book of Colossians, is that he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He defeated the enemy. He defeated the enemy. Which is to say, the devil doesn't reign in the world. King Jesus reigns. King Jesus reigns. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1. I mean, I want you to hear this so badly. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 10. I mean, this was just like a revelation for me when I understood this. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Listen to this now. That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So there's his purpose again. He has good intentions for you. To the praise of his glorious grace, with which he lavished, which with he blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption. So there's the gospel. There's how we understand the gospel of Jesus Christ and the salvation that we have. We have the redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. But listen, God doesn't stop there. That's not the end of our salvation. I want you to hear this. According to the purpose which he had set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things. I looked up the word all in the original language. It means all all things, all things in heaven and on earth, God says, I'm going to unite. I'm going to unite. So in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul starts from eternity past and goes to eternity future and says the conclusion of your salvation is not just the salvation of you personally, but it's the salvation of this world. I believe God's going to save the world. God loves the world. He's going to unite all things in heaven and on earth. God loves our world. God loves you. He loves your neighbor. He loves the people who think differently than us. He loves the people who are in California. It's crazy. I'm kidding. Sort of. No, I'm kidding. God loves the world. And so what I want us to be consumed with in our life is God's heart for our world. God's heart for our world. So many times we can be narrow-sighted and think, well, God just, I can't believe God's just, God's just about to bring the world to an end. And that may be so, but I don't know the mind of God. All I know is God's word. And God's word says, I love the world and I'm bringing salvation to the world. 
and I'm bringing redemption to the world and I'm going to unite all things in heaven and on earth. Come on, if somebody said amen. You believe that today? As we close today, I'm going to ask Amanda to come and play the keys. Here's Here's a third thing. So we need to recapture the power of God. Number two, we need to reestablish our purpose. But number three is I think we need to reposition our posture. We need to reposition our posture. Here's what I mean by that. In Acts chapter one, when Jesus is talking to the disciples, he, he ascends into heaven as he said that he would do, that he warned them of. And, and here's what happens in verse 10. It says, and while they were gazing into heaven as he went. So here are the disciples. They're just looking into heaven. They got this huge work in front of them. We have 2020 vision, so we can look back in 2,000 years and see the impact of their faith and the impact of, of, of our religion. But they were looking into heaven and had no idea what was going to happen. And behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? In other words, what are you doing? What are you doing? This Jesus who is taken up for you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. In other words, in other words these, these angels are saying to the disciples, listen, you need to reposition your posture. Listen, when the Lord comes back, I don't want to be standing like this. I want to be sitting like this. I, I, I've got my head to the ground and I'm working and I'm believing for more. I'm repositioning our posture. We're not standing saying, God, I wish you would show up. Can you believe what the Supreme Court is doing? I wish you would show up. No, 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 no. We, we keep our head to the plow and we work and we believe for God for more. A couple of ways that I think we can do this as we close today. Here's the first one. I think we need to think, we need to start thinking generationally. I think we need to start thinking long-term. I, I came across this, this, this verse not too long ago in 2 Kings chapter 20. Hezekiah is being warned by Isaiah of something that's going to happen in the land. And in 2 Kings chapter 20, verses 16 through 19, here's what it says. Isaiah says to Hezekiah, it says, Hear the word of the Lord. And behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. That's a bad warning. That's a bad warning. Shall be carried to Babylon and nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you who you will father shall be taken away and thou shalt be eunuchs in the, in the palace of the king of Babylon. So Isaiah is saying to Hezekiah, listen, some bad things are coming. Some bad things are gonna come. And the tendency a lot of times is to kind of retreat and say, well, it's coming. There's nothing we can do about it. And then Hezekiah says some of the most faithless words that I think you can read in all of the Bible. Let this not be said of us. Here's what Hezekiah says to Isaiah's warning. He says, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. Is good. How could it be good? And here's what he says. For, he thought, why not? If there is peace and security in my days. What faithless words. As long as there's peace and security in my days, I don't care what happens in the future. As long as there's peace and security in my days, I don't care what happens to my children. I think we need to believe that God is not done with our world. 
that God isn't done with our generation. Listen, if I was just talking to someone this week about the progress of Christianity in 2,000 years, I know we have a tendency to think everything's gotten so bad and so everything's getting worse and worse. But man, you know, 2,000 years ago in ancient Rome, you changed the graphic on me. It was supposed to be a cross. There's a cross. People, uh, the Romans would execute people on a cross. A terrible way to die. Terrible way to die. They, they, would, they, would, they would stand on this cross for, for hours, even days. Moms would, and dads would take children who had physical defects and, and who had a, a, a mental retardation and they would take their children and they would leave them. They would leave their babies. You know who it was who would go save these babies in ancient Rome? It was Christians. Christians. The same Christians that, that we just spoke of in the beginning part of this message who sought justice and righteousness. Time and time again, as you read history, especially the history of Western civilization, it has been Christians who sought justice. It has been Christians who sought righteousness. Why? Because there's something special about our faith. It's the same way with abortion in our country today. It's Christians who are fighting for justice and fighting for righteousness. If God has done this much in 2,000 years, how much more can he do in just another 2,000 years? What would it be like if we didn't retreat, but we stood in faith and we believed God for more? What would it be like? So we need to think long-term. And here's the last one. So I think we need to start believing. Come on, somebody say believe. I think we need to start believing. We need to believe God for more. In John chapter 14, Jesus says this to his disciples who's about to leave. He says, truly, truly, I say to you. In other words, he's saying, I want you to hear this. And I want you to take heart with what I'm about to say. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do. I remember as a kid reading that verse and thinking, how in the world am I going to do that? But he says, greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. That logic, let me just say something, that logic doesn't make sense. Jesus said, hey, because I'm leaving, greater works will you do. If I'm a disciple in the room, I'm be like, hey, I think I need you here with me if I'm going to do greater works. But he says, because I'm leaving, you're going to have greater works. Why? Because you're going to be filled with the Spirit of God. You're going to reposition your posture in the world. You're not going to be staring up in heaven waiting for a move of God. Rather, you're going to realize that we are the move of God. We are the move of God. He continues to say, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name. If you ask anything in my name. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. I will do it. Come on, I think we need to be a church that starts believing for more. Starts believing, God, do something miraculous. Do something miraculous in our world. I want people to look at some at church and say, man, those people are crazy. They're believing for crazy stuff. Everybody else find it a bunker to hide into in 2022, not some at church. We're going to engage in our world and we're going to start believing.
Would you mind bowing your heads and closing your eyes today? I just want to say a prayer for us. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word. Lord, your, your word goes forth and it does not return void. And we stand on that promise. Lord, I pray that you would fill us again with the passion for what you're doing. That Jesus changes everything. That he changes everything in our world. That he changes everything in our community. That he changes everything in our nation. And most importantly, he changes everything in our lives. He changes everything in our lives. With all heads bowed and all eyes closed, I think it would be remiss if we didn't go today without giving people an opportunity to say, man, I want to be a part of that change. I want to be a part of that change. If that's you, I don't think it's about lifting a hand or even saying anything out loud. The Bible says in Romans chapter 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be saved. If that's you, you can just say right now, even in your own heart, you can say, Jesus, I give my life to you and I trust you. I pray that you would come and change everything in my life. God, you would heal the brokenness. You would heal the sickness. God, you would bring restoration. You would bring freedom and you would bring forgiveness in my life. God, I repent of my sins. I repent of my past and I put my trust in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Come on, everybody said. Can we just give Jesus one more shout of praise? Hey, before we go today, would you mind standing to your feet? I want to say one more prayer for us as we leave. You receive that word today that Jesus changes everything. Amen. Amen. So Lord, today in faith, I pray that you would equip us. You would empower us as we leave with the power of the Holy Spirit. That you would go with us and behind us and before us. God, that you would remind us of the power, Lord. The same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is the same power that lives in us. God is not limited to a church service or the four walls of this building, God. We have the power of God inside of us when we step out of these doors, when we lead in our business and in our work, in our community, in our home, God. The power of God is with us. And so, Lord, I pray that we would recapture the power of God, that we would reestablish our purpose. And God, we would reposition our posture in the world. And we thank you for your power. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Come on, one more time. Give Jesus one more shout of praise.